I actually finished with the Potapada Sutta yesterday, but I haven't brought a new one to start with because I didn't finish telling or explaining the cultivation and development of our wholesome root. I only talked about one of our unwholesome and wholesome roots, particularly greed versus generosity or renunciation. So the other unwholesome root, which seems to worry people far more than greed, is hate. It worries people far more because it feels so uncomfortable. Now, greed doesn't feel that uncomfortable unless it is exaggerated. When it's the ordinary kind of greed, like I want this or I want that and I'd like to have a a pleasant conversation or I'd like to meet some nice people, it doesn't feel uncomfortable because it promises a result. There seems to be the fantasizing in the mind with the hope that this particular desire is going to result in a very pleasant situation. Because if one didn't think so, one would drop the desire very quickly. So it doesn't feel... The dukkha is not felt that is inherent in all craving because it is overridden by the hope and the promise. In other words, we're very capable of living in the future. Any meditator knows that. The future seems to be always just a tiny little bit better than the present. But since the future never comes, when it comes, it's always the present. We never make it. We're always running after something. But at least with the greed, we don't feel so uncomfortable. In fact, people who have a lot of greed are people who are also usually far more able to enjoy their sense pleasures. And because they enjoy their sense pleasures, they have at least quite a number of moments of enjoyment where they feel at ease. Although that collapses again, and usually has to be paid for with something, either with health, or with money, or with time, or with energy. At least they have their moments. Now the person that has lots of hate doesn't even have their moments, because it feels as if there are some nice blades inside, which sometimes are sharpened, and sometimes they are a little duller, depending on how strong the hate and dislike is. And such a person does not feel at ease, and therefore is far more interested in practicing. Now, you see, although it feels more uncomfortable, it has the advantage of the urgency of practice. The greed person feels more more comfortable, but it's not pushed so much to properly practice, maybe superficially. 
Now, obviously, anybody who's got hate has greed. Anybody who's got greed has hate because both of them are based on our ego delusion. Otherwise, they couldn't arise. It's just a matter of quantity of each. There are characters that have more of the one and then there are characters that have more of the other. A very famous monk in northeastern Thailand who is said to be Arahant, fully enlightened, Tanachan Mahabur, used to say that he would prefer if all his monks were hate characters. At least they practice day in and day out. Whether he only got hate characters, I don't know. Of course, they are much more difficult to live with, but then he wouldn't have cared. He was an Arahant, so he could live with anybody. And uh, the Greek person is easier to live with, and finds it easier to live with him or herself also. But in effect, of course, they're both equally subject to the delusion of the ego. Now, with hate, we have the antidote of love, of course. It's very easy to see. But hate is a word which denotes in our minds something really terrible. I hate somebody. I have violent passion inside. But that is not meant. Hate is not as only used as an overall description of a negative emotion. So what we have included in it is dislike, irritation, resistance, rejection, fear, anxiety. We can put worry in it too. The whole gamut of the emotional states within which are not kept on a level where there is either joy or equanimity. Every emotional state which does not produce joy or equanimity belongs to the hate state. Now that requires of us that we recognize what's going on within that we recognize even the slightest dislike and even the slightest justified dislike. Now, that doesn't mean that we, from then on, no longer discriminate between that which is good or bad, profitable or unprofitable, wholesome or unwholesome. But it means that we learn to know and reject the crime but never the criminal. In other words, an objective, totally objective recognition of something which is wrong but without any hate or dislike in it. That's a tall order. It's difficult to do, and one has to train oneself over and over again until one sees exactly where the borderline is. Now, I have mentioned before, I think, that the Buddha used to call his monks and nuns fools when they acted wrongly. 
which was about the worst that he called them. But he also told them in no uncertain terms when they did something wrong. And one time, they had done so many things wrong that he walked out on them and went to the forest for three months. In fact, he, had, he said he wasn't going to come back at all. But the lay people went and begged him to please come back so that they could hear the good Dhamma again. So after three months, he came back. So it wasn't the case of goody goody, everything is great. We're we're all um, we're all uh, sweethearts together, or something like that. Nothing of the sort. The Buddha told exactly when things went wrong. But being enlightened arahant, of course, there wouldn't have been the slightest dislike, irritation, or resistance or rejection of anyone in him. Now, not being Arahant, that may be a little difficult, but at least we can start knowing ourselves and recognizing the fact that any dislike that we have within brings unhappiness to ourselves. And maybe we'll have enough self-honesty and it will have to come to that one day when we can call ourselves a fool to make ourselves voluntarily unhappy by having a dislike within. Now if we don't learn to stop being foolish our spiritual practice will of course not flourish because all we do wrong is always only done out of ignorance, ignorance, foolishness. So if we can see, and mindfulness of mental emotional state, third phase of mindfulness, will be the tool to make us see, and see that, when we see that we are actually doing it ourselves, any kind of unhappiness which arises, any kind of uh, anxiety, any kind of um, reaction which doesn't bring joy or equanimity. It's all happening within. When we don't see that finally, that it's only us, nobody else, the rest is all triggered. We can't really practice. So one of the fine boards you can make yourself with nice big letters in red, green, or black, whatever you prefer, blue, don't blame the trigger. It isn't the trigger. It's us ourselves. The world is full of triggers. It will never stop being full of triggers. There's no way we can get the triggers out of the world. There are always going to be unpleasant people, people who don't like us, people who don't appreciate us, people who don't love us, people who think we're stupid, people who love somebody else more, there's just no end to this. There's always going to be a government that doesn't act properly. In fact, all governments don't act properly. I mean, we don't have to look far for that. There's always going to be the weather we don't like. There's always going to be the food we don't like. There's always going to be something. It doesn't stop. 
it goes on and on and on. And because we have been disliking those things for lifetimes on end, we're back here again and disliking them again and again and next time again. And we'll be disliking it without end. It's a circular movement. Because you might remember, or maybe not, but if you've heard it often enough from me, you probably do remember, that in the dependent arising, which also was part of the uh, um, explanations of the Sutta, that there is a point between the, after the feeling that comes from the sense contact, sense contact feeling, and then the next thing, which is the craving, which is either the like or the dislike, that one point where we can step out, the one point where there is a doorway out of that circular movement from birth to death to birth to death over and over again. That's the only point. There's no other point in that dependent arising. Now this is the criteria. That we can't do it right away is a second matter, but if we don't practice it, we'll never do it. If we don't learn and try to train ourselves in a certain skill, how will we ever make that skill happen? Naturally, we'll have many a time the um, experience that we tried and it didn't work. Well, but we will have many a time the experience that we tried and it does work. And what we should do in order to practice properly is to choose something simple, like the weather. The weather doesn't talk back. It's very nice in this way. It just is. Maybe it's too hot. And there arises in the mind a kind of rejection of it. I like it better cold. Much nicer in my country. It doesn't get that hot. Or uh, the cooties aren't well built. Or, um, or it's too cold. And the mind says, it doesn't get that cold in my country. And uh, who can meditate when it's so cold? Or... I'm shivering, I don't like it. All these reactions of the mind to the weather. And then remembering there's only one doorway out of dependent arising, and that is feeling without reaction. And then having the weather hot. You say, oh, that's so hot. Or it's cold. Oh, that's so cold. And maybe, in addition, remembering impermanence. Now it's cold, it's going to be hot. Now it's hot, it's going to be cold. Try something simple like that. Not when somebody makes you very angry and then trying not to react. That's a bit difficult. Let's try the weather first. The next thing to try with is the food. That's also simple. It also doesn't talk back. Very simple. Same thing as with the weather. And the third thing might be the government because we have no say in the matter, so we might as well, you know, look at it. We, we can't do anything about it anyway. And they don't even talk to us about it. They don't want to know what we are thinking. So those are simple things to work with. 
again and again until it becomes natural. Three of us who are here were on Parapaduanan's island and it is boiling hot there. And there was only one thing to do, to disregard it completely. The minute you put your mind on the fact that it's too hot, you had to give up. Boiling hot. You couldn't do a thing. You sit in the office and try and write a letter and the letter is completely wet because your arm is dripping on it. You have to disregard it. Otherwise you can't live anyway. Live with it. So it's hot. So, now of course, sometimes one didn't disregard it. But most of the time one had to learn to disregard it. We got up at 3.30 in the morning because that was the only good time to meditate. Nice and cool then. Not always, but mostly. So, getting up at 3.30 in the morning don't like getting up at 3.30 in the morning. Well, just do it. Do it and don't think about it. It all goes in the same direction. It's just happening. And so we go along with it. Now, things like the weather, we have to go along with. Food, can't do anything about it unless you want to go to a restaurant. So you've got to get, go along with it. Right? Everybody gets up at 3.30? Well, you don't want to be the only one that makes a bad face about it, so you go along with it. Just do it. It's the only way to learn this. Otherwise, we're always going to react. How are we going to stop reacting? We're going to have to get enlightened first. But how are we going to get enlightened if we don't stop reacting? We've got to do something somewhere along the line. So we're going to have to try. And this of course. Now, these are the simple things. Easy. Nothing to it. Anybody can do it. You just have to make up your mind to do it. But now comes with people. That's the hard one. The rain doesn't talk back. The sun doesn't talk back. Nothing talks back. But people talk back. They tell you that you're talking nonsense, that they don't like you, all the rest of it. So what are you going to do about that? Be very difficult to love them right. But that's not required. What's required at such a time when this happens is an understanding that the only one I'm hurting with my dislike am I myself. So why should I go on hurting myself? Now obviously, first of all, a person who has dislike or fear or irritation in the mind can't meditate. This is an important factor for meditating. When there's fear, worry, dislike, one can't meditate. No way. The same, of course, when one has sensual desires, one also can't meditate. So that's a very important factor, but only for meditators. But not what about everyday life. How do we hurt ourselves by these dislikes? First of all, we make grooves in the mind, ruts, into which we fall over and over again. It's going to happen again and again. And eventually, every med meditator knows that they've been doing this a thousand, a million times. And always from the same triggers. Everybody's got their pet trigger. We can usually make a list of our pet triggers. For some people, it is actually the weather. For some people, 
is that it might be the dark and for some people it's certain words and for some people it's a certain way, uh, maybe authority, certain triggers. Everybody's got certain triggers that sets them off. We must recognize those triggers and we do, a meditator does, and then recognize the fact that, well, are the triggers going to stop or am I going to stop? Or am I going to keep on running away from those triggers with the absolute guarantee that they're always going to come back? Now, the running away bit means not physically running necessarily, but it also means turning oneself away from the people that produce those triggers and um, changing one's position situation so that one doesn't have the same triggers. But one thing is a guarantee. What we haven't dealt with is going to come back over and over until we've dealt with it. And if you go back in your mind just now, just a little while back in your life, you will know they've all come back over and over. Always the same triggers. If we can't escape, there is no escape. This little globe of ours is round. Wherever we run to, we're always coming back to the same place. Depending, the rising is a circle from birth to death and then to birth again. So there's nowhere to go. It's all in one direction, clockwise. That's all. So if we get that quite clear in our minds, it is not going to stop us reacting right away, but it's going to make us aware of our reactions. And when we become aware of our reactions, we can see, first of all, that some of them are quite foolish. They are based on fantasy. And the fantasy which we have produced is based on something that we carry within. In other words, if we think another person doesn't like us. Because every time they see us, they look in another direction. That's just as an example. Huh? When we actually meet that person one day and maybe have enough uh, honesty and courage to ask them, they're going to look at us as if they're completely out of our minds. They didn't have anything like that in their minds. They probably didn't see us. But because we have a dislike in here, the potential for dislike, we immediately put the two together. It's not looking at me, doesn't like me. Never occurred to us that not looking at me, oh, didn't see me, huh? <laughs> Never do it like that. So we build up our reactions very often on fantasy. And fantasy is based on what we know about ourselves. Now, it's just barely possible that the person also really didn't like us and didn't want to see us. But is that any reason for us to dislike that person? Just because that person is foolish and making him or herself unhappy, why should we react in the same way? Nothing could be more foolish. Why should we be caught in another person's emotion? Now, this is a very important point. Our dislikes and hates and uh, rejections are very often a reaction to an emotion that somebody else has. Which means we are making ourselves slaves 
we're not free. We are making ourselves subject to the emotion of other people. Why don't we just leave other people to their own emotions? Can't we leave them alone, let them have their own emotions? I mean, there are five billion people on this planet. Why can't they all have their own emotions? Five billion different emotions. Let them have it. The only thing that we have any jurisdiction over, the only thing that we can do anything about are our own. And those are to be trained. This is what the Buddha says over and over again. Training. Training. Now, training sometimes is easier than other times. Actually, in order to train properly, one needs to give oneself the proper environment, the proper situation. Because our natural, our environment in which we usually live is geared towards making it as comfortable as possible and trying to get out of as many dislikes as possible so that we can sit in our little um, nest and try to forget that there are so many things which we actually haven't dealt with yet, which is no way to practice. The way to practice it to be there in the world and know every time when our own inner being is not at ease, is not at peace, and recognize the cause for it. This is a generality. There are occasions, which the Buddha mentioned, when one can't deal with the situation. But one mustn't not deal with all situations. In other words, if we start running away from everything that happens, that, which isn't exactly pleasant for us, we're never going to practice, we're never going to train ourselves. Actually, Dukkha is our best teacher. It's the only one that's reliable. All other teachers go away. That one sticks around until ego goes away. It doesn't leave us. It doesn't leave us to our own devices. It's always there. So it's the best teacher. But if we, if we try to have a situation in our lives where there is the least um, contact and therefore the least possibility of reaction, we're not really training. We need to train ourselves under all circumstances. But there is a possibility that we come to a circumstance which we can't deal with. Where our mind over and over again goes into negativity. One particular situation. Then we must admit to ourselves that our training just isn't good enough yet. We haven't been able to deal with this particular thing, so we must leave it. That's quite all right. The Buddha said that we must protect ourselves from wild elephants and uh, jungle thickets and uh, robbers and... uh, such people. We need to protect ourselves from them because we're not uh, not that uh, strong within yet. But our daily contact in everyday life are actually our training periods. 
they are our training sessions. And if we feel that we haven't really come through that particular training session with flying colors yet, we're bound to get the same one again whether we want to or not. This life is an adult education class. Whether we think of it that way or not makes no difference. And if we don't use it that way, we are missing the best part of this life. An adult education class where we can actually, having passed the exams, be promoted to the next higher class. But not having passed the exams, we're going to be held back until we finally made it. So if our contact that we have with other people produce over and over again the negative reaction because of certain triggers, we're going to have to work at it until it's finally done. And when it's finally done, we get to the next higher class. Then we don't work on hate, then we have to work on irritation. And then we work, we've worked on irritation, then we have to work on mild anxiety or whatever it is, just from class to class until eventually we've seen it all. Obviously, the whole thing only becomes totally eradicated with the eradication of even the slightest tinge of selfhood. That is a major undertaking. But on the way there, we have to do something, otherwise we can't even practice properly. So, hate, Buddha said, is never conquered by hate, it's conquered by love alone. So, all our difficulties, over and over again, will have much less of an thing to it. They have much less of an impact if we can develop the quality of love within our hearts. But this quality of love must never be dependent upon a favorable situation or a lovable person or anything that is a pleasant sense contact. You know, I feel very loving when the weather is right, or I feel very loving when everybody talks nicely, or I feel very loving when nobody talks. That's not good enough. The quality of love that we must generate within has to be independent. It's just the quality. It's the same as the intelligence, the quality of the mind, so is love the quality of the heart. And if as long as it's dependent, we can't arouse it at will. We're always subject to some condition which we can't make happen because conditions are not always favorable for us. We can't make it happen that way. The purification practice which we need to undertake and we hear a lot about this purification practice, all continually goes on in mental 
and emotional state. And without that purification practice, we're not practicing. That practice doesn't have to be now always successful. Practice doesn't mean yet that it's always successful. Practice means trying over and over again. And there we have a formula, just like we have a formula for don't blame the trigger, we have a formula recognition, no blame, change. Again and again. And if we can't recognize there's no change. But if we blame ourselves for our own negativities, what do we get? Double negativities. And in this case, unfortunately, a double negative does not make a positive, as it usually does in our language and grammar. A double negative is just a double negative here. If we've done something or felt something which is unfortunate, and then blame ourselves on top of it, we've got two things to worry about instead of one. If we can recognize what it is that we are doing, and then slowly and gently change our inner resources that we all have and bring out the ones that have the goodness in them, then that whole being inside slowly changes. I like to compare this, as I often do, with a garden in which the weeds are growing. If we allow the weeds to continue, they will overgrow everything. We won't be able to even see that there are any good plants in the garden. But there must be. We've also got the good roots. We can't see them anymore because the weeds have got so big and are flourishing so well that they are overshadowing everything. And by doing so, they take out all the nourishment out of the soil and they also prevent sun and rain from reaching the good plants. So what we need to do is cut them down over and over again, the weeds. Not only will they then not overshadow everything, we can see the beautiful plants also, but also their roots become weaker and weaker until one day we can actually uproot them. Now, uprooting our negative tendencies is not an easy task. But if we don't at least cut them down, we have, first of all, no peace of mind. And secondly, we are dependent upon the right kind of conditions in order to keep us on a level that we can manage. Our meditation suffers from it. And we continually hurt our own mind and heart. Our heart and mind are fragile, you know how easy it is to get angry. You know how easy it is to get worried and upset. They're very fragile. They're always on the point of falling to pieces. So we should never allow them to do that. 
but always give them the strength from our inner being to keep the good roots going. It is probably the most important aspect of the practice which is tremendously helped through the meditation. The meditation itself is the purification factor which I have already mentioned many times. The real concentration which happens in the absorption purifies to an extent or to the extent that we are concentrated and to the length of time that we're keeping it going. And because we experience in those states a lack of hate and greed and become aware of the freedom that provides us with, we will be more inclined to practice harder. The freedom we experience when there is no hate and greed, when there is only concentration and other states of consciousness, makes it imperative that the mind really goes along that way. The reaction to small matters needs to be watched. The smallest matter is worth watching. And the smallest reaction from small acorns, big oak trees grow. From small irritations, anger and hate arise. An irritated mind feels most unpleasant. It seems to have a fire um, quality in it and also a quality of not being able to settle quietly. A mind which can't settle quietly obviously can't meditate. Our hates are based upon those things that we would like to get and aren't getting or those things we'd like to get rid of but have. In other words, we're discontented. We have things, not necessarily material things, situations, people, uh, understanding, ideas, hopes, plans, worries which we wouldn't like to have and we are missing those that we'd like to have. The antidote for that this lack of contentment are obviously the meditative absorptions. And if you remember the third factor of the meditative absorptions which is pleasant sensation is an automatic antidote for ill will and hate. Not only during the time of having it but also with its residual effects where we know that we can get back to that state 
and don't have to take everything so seriously. But there's another quality which we can arouse, which will help us in our quest for purity. And the spiritual path has to be a quest for purity, otherwise it is not a spiritual path. Insight. And therefore, it is essential that particularly in a course such as this, that we don't forget impermanence, unsatisfactoriness and querlessness, either one of the three. Each person that practices properly will eventually pick one of those three as their most interesting investigation subject. A person who is very analytically inclined will choose querlessness. A person who has a lot of faith and confidence in the Buddha and his teaching will choose Dukkha. And a person who has a fair bit of concentration usually chooses impermanence. These are generalities. We can change our subject anytime. We can use it for a week, for a month, for a year and take another one or for a day. It doesn't matter. All three lead to the same result, to liberation, if we have penetrated them completely. The easiest one is impermanence. No problem. Not to forget it, which is the fourth step on clear comprehension. The clear comprehension of non-delusion which means that in all our intentions, where we examine our intentions, in other words, our purpose, we also come as far as keeping in mind one of the three characteristics which will bring us insight, wisdom, so that we can see things our own mental states, other people's mental emotional states, as just arising clouds in the sky which will definitely cease again and which do not have the kind of significance which we seem to attach to them. The liberation through impermanence is called the signless liberation. Without any signs, one finally sees that there's nothing with significance. When you look at the word significance, it starts out with sign. But that's only an English word play. It certainly wasn't that in Pali but it happens to fit. It's called the signless liberation. No signs, nothing, no significance. What's, li what's happening on this level of consciousness is a lousy dream. That's all it is. 
constantly trying to alleviate its unpleasantness through pleasant sense contact. That's all there is. And if we actually look at impermanence and don't forget, and that's what everybody does, of course, forget, we will eventually come one day to the doorway which leads to liberation through impermanence, which is that which I've just said. Most significant. All signs disappear. Nothing left. If we can just remember impermanence, just remembering it, it will already help us to cultivate the good roots. Because we nothing that impinges upon us is then taken quite so seriously. And the good roots keep us on an even keel where equanimity and joyousness and love are easy. They are a natural phenomena then. Just remembering. That's all that's necessary to start out with. Just remembering impermanence. From that remembering then comes the actual experiencing this is the time to do it. The breath is impermanent, the thoughts impermanent, the feelings impermanent, the movement is impermanent, the day is so impermanent, the weather is impermanent. Everything that exists, the tree, the bush, the leaf, try to find something permanent for change. Do it the other way around. Look. Try to find something that really sticks around. Anything that doesn't have any movement at all. So when we first remember impermanence and then get to experiencing it in ourselves and not forget to experience that and then look around outside and have the understanding and the realization it's out there is the same as in here the whole life continuum and the whole emotional state that we are subject to take on a totally different aspect the emotions will still arise they're not as meaningful as they used to be. In fact, they become meaningless eventually, unless they are equanimity or joyousness or love. So in order to cultivate the good roots properly and with real, with a real, um, understanding of what one is doing, the insight into impermanence and the non-forgetting of it is a great benefit to that practice. To force ourselves not to hate is impossible. There's no such thing. We can't do that. To force ourselves not to be irritated, that's also impossible. And on the contrary, force creates counterforce, And it makes it even worse. There's no way we can do that. To act out the hate 
isn't going to help at all. Because if we act it out, we've only made more grooves and ruts into our mind. This idea in Western therapy to make a soundproof room with mattresses on the floor and on the walls where you can get in and scream out your rage and hit the mattresses because you would have liked to hit your father when you were little. Absolute and utter nonsense. Because that kind of reaction within may have been alleviated at that time for a day or of a week and then it just arises again and then you can pay your $50 again and get your little soundproof roof room again <laughs> I'm from a cheap area <laughs> but if we want to have that inner being that one hopes and dreams about that spiritual practice is supposed to um, generate we've got to work hard at it but not with force neither with suppression nor with expression with change recognition, no blame, change and the change comes about from the inside that it's only my own benefit if I do it and it also comes about from the inside into the general understanding of the whole of the universe when we see that clearly we can do it anybody can do it there's nobody that can't there are only those that won't that's of course of those there are legions that won't but nobody that can't it's a matter of understanding. The Buddha said, I can teach those that have little dust in their eyes. It's these eyes here, not those. Well, if we are that lucky, we can certainly do it. I think that's enough for this evening. If you have questions, please, it's the time to ask them. You mentioned earlier about the fact that the Buddha said we need to protect ourselves and others and from robbers and other yes. people. Does yes. that suggest at some point we don't need to? Sure. When the when the one is arahant, fully enlightened, you don't need any protection. There's nobody there to be protected. But since we are unenlightened, untrained people, we have only a certain capacity. But if we don't try to practice, then we will not enlarge that capacity. So we've got to try our very best, but also understand that at times we can't do it and have to remove ourselves or whatever we need to do. Sure, an arahant doesn't have to protect himself. In fact, he was able to make an arahant out of a, a person who had killed already 
999 people. He doesn't have to protect himself. He is fully protected, there's nobody there. can be injured, but it doesn't matter. Physically injured, not mentally. Not mentally, emotionally. Physical is a body like ours. Same body. Dies. All arahants have died at a certain age. But not mentally, emotionally, can't hurt. Nice idea, isn't it? <laughs> okay, anything else? Hmm? Well, I just <laughs> I can't answer. <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> they don't say I am an arahant, but from things they do say, one can understand that they have done the work to the to the end. But um, only if one is very um, alert to what they're saying. If one just doesn't pay so much attention one wouldn't know. I have no idea whether there are many. Some of some of them might be hidden where one never finds them. I have no idea. I wouldn't think so. I don't think that this is a um, climate now in which many arahants can arise. It's a technological time. And there are many technocrats. And, uh, you know, in the, like in the Renaissance, we had many great painters. In the Middle Ages, we also had some uh, great mystics these were the times seemed to create a certain consciousness which is then available. At the moment we have fantastic computer consciousness. Well, there's still some around, sure, some around. But uh, I wouldn't think that there are many, no. But that's a personal opinion. Anything else? The Buddha would have probably said, why do you want to know that? <laughs> well, you think if someone was an argument, they might have the Not all of them. Not all of them. Only those that have that talent. The Buddha said it's one of the six rarities. Six rarities in life to teach so that there's somebody there that can teach the true Dhamma. Not all arahants would be able to teach. They'd probably be available if somebody comes to ask them something, but uh, they wouldn't be necessarily teachers. Probably the other way around. Most teachers aren't aren't. <laughs> um, one is a rising of a Buddha. One is a person who will do a kindness. One is a person who will be grateful for it. That's three. And then uh, the, um, the one who can teach the true Dhamma, that's four. 
I'm afraid I've forgotten the other two. I'll have to look them up. It's in the Ang- Nikaya and the Book of the Sixes. I'm going to have to look it up. <laughs> I can't, you know, offhand, I can't remember. Mm. I'd have to think about it. It would take me a while to think about it and get it back. Mm. Anything else? About hate, greed, and delusion. Or anything else that has any bearing on, on any of that. Yes? The word delusion in this context seems to imply guilty all the time. It has a specific meaning. The Buddhist terminology, we, um, again and again, the translators, those that are good, try to uh, repeat the same word for the same a Pali word so that we eventually have a terminology where we know exactly what we're talking about. Here it means, this word means nothing other than the ego idea that I am me. That's all it means. The delusion of self. It's uh, sometimes called the illusion. Um, it's in Pali, it's moha. In uh, Sanskrit, it's often used the word maya. It's the same word, moha, maya. Um, but it, it just means, it doesn't mean that all this is an illusion, which is very often misunderstood. This is, all, this is here. The illusion is because we think that this has significance. Or this, or this, or that, or this, or that. All has significance. That's the illusion. Not that these things are here. They're all here. So that's very often misunderstood, especially I found that misunderstood in the, in the Hindu um, explanation of Maya. And I myself totally misunderstood it when I heard it. But Moha and, and in Pali, and the word delusion or illusion, it means nothing else except that we think there is a core substance within ourselves and everything else that we see. That's its term. So it's not seeing nothing without, it's simply seeing nothing within. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Yes. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's what we're after. <laughs> That's where we're going. And it is important to know the road map, even if we haven't got there yet, so that we can take the right turn at the right time. You just think of a road map. Let's say you want to go from Melbourne to Bandanoon. And you know exactly that at a certain point you've got to turn right. Or you haven't got there yet. But when you get there, you know you've got to turn right. And then you know you've got to turn left again. It's like without it, you'll probably go around in circles. Never get there. It's very few people who get there accidentally. Very few. And that's not an accident then, of course. It's only due to uh, past lifetimes of 